0: So, this talk is about setting intentions. And just to give a very quick summary of um, what intentions are in the Buddhist Dharma, intentions are the second factor of the Eightfold Path. They're very central to Buddhist practice, which is essentially setting goals or aspirations. There, the way we implement the wisdom of our spiritual lives. The wisdom that the Buddha wanted to be implemented in our intentions and in the choices we make is a very basic understanding that in life, first of all, the first noble truth, there's a lot of difficult experiences, and none of those difficult experiences are personal. While old age sickness, death, loss, separation from people we love, uh, being stuck with people we're not thrilled about, uh, frustrating daily events, while all of these experiences feel very personal and unique to us. They are, in fact, while the details of them might be individual, in general, we all face these experiences. And the Buddha said, as a result, we also will experience sorrow, lamentation, grief, despair, pain. It's just going to be part of the human birth, how it plays out. You don't get through uh, this life unscarred by disappointing experiences. And the Buddha noted that most people try to cultivate or develop happiness and security in ways that only add to their suffering. That's the second noble truth. We try to uh, achieve happiness and security by accumulation. Accumulating, he said, objects, money, uh, recognition, in areas that are not authentic, we essentially try to buy our happiness. And uh, the basic insight of spiritual practice is that there are two reliable sources of security and happiness in life. Those two are, one, being responsible for actions, whether in your day-to-day life or your livelihood or how you relate to other people, that bonds you with other people rather than um, cause isolation and separate and needless separation. Interestingly enough During the 1980s and 90s, when Martin Seligman became was a famous positive psychologist, became the head of the American Psychiatric Association, he spent a lot of money funding studies into what creates human happiness. He thought that was an important area of study. And the research showed that human happiness reliably comes from uh, feeling that we are deeply connected with other people and also feeling that our work benefits the greater good. Those are the two sources of uh, feelings of reliable ease and esteem and peace of mind. So, interestingly enough, We are trained in capitalist systems to look in a lot of other places to find happiness and security, largely through financial (coughs) means or through achieving fame uh, rather than deeply connecting authentically with other people. The Buddha recommended finding close connections with people we can disclose and talk about our experience and our lives with and also to take actions that don't cause harm. And he recommended that we not become addicted to substances or to behaviors that get in the way of our ability to reliably, securely connect with each other. As uh, many psychologists like Kohut and Flores have noted, When we don't feel we can trust other people with our feelings and emotions and become authentically open about and disclose our experience, we tend to become addicted to various behaviors and substances as a way out of the the vulnerable work of opening ourselves and our hearts to others. So it's not surprising that the core intentions that the Buddha laid out in right intention the second factor of the Eightfold Path boiled down to, one, giving up the addictions that get in the way of, of securing deep, reliable, authentic, open, emotional, vulnerable, lasting, secure relationships. And two, uh, not taking actions that cause harm to the tribe's we belong to. In other words, feeling that our actions cause, uh, don't benefit the greater good, but actually cause harm to the greater good. That we're placing ourselves above other people's happiness. If you look at the Buddha's intentions from these two perspectives, that they're pointing us in the direction of where reliable happiness and security can be found, then they make a great deal of of sense. And certainly, Buddhism is by no means the only spiritual path that suggests not causing harm and not being addicted to sensual pleasures that get in the way of meaningful relationships. Um, Virtually all spiritual paths suggest this. And yet, even though we can understand why these... Uh, these intentions are worthy, and we can set worthy intentions for ourselves, they can be very, very difficult to implement. Most of us don't set really terribly unskillful. I mean, the most unskillful intentions we might be, you know, to lose weight in an attempt to get love from people who won't give us love unless we attain a certain body shape which is not the most skillful aim, but it's understandable that people feel that way. Or they want to become ridiculously muscular because they feel that that will make them more attractive or lovable. But if you're simply the goal is health, that's fine. But still, we can find very worthy intentions to connect more with people we love, to be more creative, to spend more times with family and loved ones, to pick up an instrument, to travel, whatever. We can find these very real, re- reliable, good, solid, worthy intentions very, very difficult to put into practice. So why is that? Why is it that we can have goals that are very, very difficult to, even though they're for our, our long-term benefit, They would make us happy in the long term. Why is it they can be so difficult? So I'm going to address that. Um, The mind is not a single entity. As the Buddha noted, there's both the intellectual mind, which is what you're conscious of. He called it mano, which is the realm of where all your conscious thoughts and ideas and narratives are. In neuroscience, it's known as the left hemisphere of the brain. In psychology, it's known as the cognitive self, the part of you that is consciously aware and narrates your experience and sets goals. And your conscious mind views all of your experience in terms of, does this bring me closer to some state I would like to be in in the future? So if you have, for instance, a goal to be completely financially Utterly secure by the time you're sixty you'll view every single event in your life cognitively in terms of um, will this help you achieve that goal so every bill every unforeseen financial issue will be seen as a deficit bad news every time you you get a bonus or a raise will be seen as good news that's simple um, So the left hemisphere, the cognitive mind, views everything in terms of uh, our narrative arcs, what we want to achieve in our life. It looks at everything in terms of the story we're telling about our lives and what we want to get done. But you also have an entirely separate mind. The Buddha called it the citta, the emotional mind, the right hemisphere, the realm of unconscious emotional associations. Whereas our left hemisphere and our cognitive mind work through thoughts and stories and they're what we're aware of and we can voluntarily recall, the emotional mind is completely largely uh, unconscious. You're not aware of much of its activations. But it's influencing you all the time through subtle, what the Buddha called Vedana, body sensations. Every decision you make, your emotional mind is giving you feedback. So, for instance, tonight for dinner, if you go to a restaurant and you're faced with a choice between a tuna melt and a I don't know. A a salad. You're faced with this choice and you look at the two choices on the menu, you don't consciously weigh out, oh, well, the amount of calories and the, you might. But most people will simply trust what we call our gut feelings, our intuition. Essentially what that is, is your mind looks through its vast emotional chains of associations and it looks through the list of um, uh, tuna melt. And if tuna melt is associated with feelings of satiation and pleasure and, and fulfillment, then your body will relax your emotional mind talks to you through your body. On the other hand, if you look through salad, and the last time or sometime early in life you were forced to eat salad by parents that didn't want you to eat pizza when you wanted, and you associate salad with stringent denial of, of, and self-regulation and stress, then your body will get tense. And so guess what you'll choose? Hmm. <laughs> so, you're doing that all the time. Procrastination. What's going on there? You set a task that you'd like to achieve in your life. For instance, you want to write, you've set a goal to write your memoirs. Not that the world needs more memoirs, but you decided (laughs) to do that. And every day you sit down to write your memoirs, and hours pass, and you find that uh, Facebook is far more fascinating, or Amazon is more thrilling, than writing your memoirs. So... Why is that? Even though certainly you know that in terms of self-esteem and long-term feelings of accomplishment, working on your writing or your art or playing a new instrument would be in your long-term benefit, you still don't do it. I mean, when I say you, I mean me, us, human beings, one, just a general term. So why do we procrastinate? Well, because at some point earlier in our life, Perhaps even before we developed narrative memory, we developed an emotional association between writing, being creative, and rejection. So perhaps sometime in third grade we were asked to write or draw something and we show it to the class and other kids laugh at us and we feel shamed and humiliated and despondent and disconnected, and what happens, we make the emotional association that being creative results in interpersonal rejection. Now, you would think, obviously, and the key word in that sentence is think, that we would be smarter, and we would learn that... all these early experiences that associate entirely worthy endeavors with negative social rejections would somehow become transcended, that somehow we would learn that we're safe to show our writing or our art or dance. But in fact, human beings, we are social animals. Our safety, our security comes through connecting. And when we have negative social experiences that lead to feelings of disconnection, the brain is set up to avoid those experiences again. So later on in life, when you develop the urge to write, or dance, or be creative, or take on a new skill, the emotional associations with not knowing how to do something, or being vulnerable, or showing your creative side to others, can produce enormous amounts of physical anxiety, which your unconscious mind reads and then avoids it. How do you avoid it? Well, you sit down in front of the computer deciding, and with all the best efforts in your heart, today I'm going to write my memoir. But when you sit down, you start to feel the subtle, building, physical stress because you've associated writing with rejection or abandonment at some point previously. And then you look at Facebook. And that you associate with connection and people liking your posts and lots of things going on and people wanting your attention. And that feels good. So Facebook reduces the anxiety. It's like the tuna melt versus the salad. The skillful endeavor which is associated with abandonment, creates physical stress, we avoid it, and we go to the unhealthy Facebook, or Amazon, or something that feels easier, with no risk, and we go there. Even though the thing we focus on has no risk, I mean, has no long-term benefit because it has no risk, the mind will gravitate towards it again and again. This is the simple process that derails so many agendas where we want to develop, we want to connect, we want to take care of ourselves, we want to develop healthy healthy routines, simply because at some point earlier in our life, we've associated so many endeavors with rejection, abandonment, ridicule by our peers, caretakers not supporting it, parents who didn't get it, why we love to dance or sing or play music, friends who made fun of us when we tried to be funny or tried to be serious or whatever. All those interpersonal experiences, while the intellectual mind can say, well, I shouldn't be that affected by it. But the emotional mind, its job is to make sure we feel safely, securely connected. And it will avoid any behavior that we've previously associated with rejection. So if we want to take on intentions that are for our benefit, we have to understand why we procrastinate. Not view procrastination as some form of laziness, not some form of there's something wrong with us. There's nothing wrong with us. We're not lazy. It's simply that at some point earlier on in life we've been wounded and we've associated many, many healthy behaviors with rejection and a loss of love and a loss of care. And so, if we want to move into healthy directions in our life, we need to address this fear, this concern, that if we try to be more creative, if we try to reach out and ask for help, if we try to connect vulnerably with others, that rather than being um, greeted with ridicule or shame or rejection, that we can, in fact, find love and care. So how do we do that? How do we understand our emotional fears that get in the way of making changes and address those unconscious concerns? One, we can, in what Buddha called our meditation, we can sit and reflect on all the times in life where we've taken risks. We've shown our creative work to other people. We've played the guitar for friends. We've shown our drawings. We've danced spontaneously. And people didn't laugh. Our school peers didn't point their fingers and ridicule us. Hold in the mind all of what one psychologist calls the contrary evidence. Now, this is very important. Clinical psychologists have long demonstrated that the mind has what's called negativity bias. What is negativity bias? The brain is set up to recall very quickly, store very quickly in long-term memory all of the negative interpersonal experiences. It takes about a half a second for you to memorize the image of an unhappy, frowning face. The same studies show that it takes you 12 to 15 seconds to remember a face that's smiling. Because your brain, your midbrain, your amygdala is set up to prioritize memorizing for long-term emotional unconscious memory all of the negative, threatening experiences that get in the way of your connection with other people. You are set up to collect the bad news. You are not set up to collect and memorize all the times that people have been supporting and caring and have been on your side. Why is that? Well, here's the bad news. We've been around as a species for some 200,000 years, and the first 190,000 of those years, we were not in very good situations. We don't run fast, we don't climb trees well, we don't dig holes well, we don't have shells or fangs, most of us, at least. So, out in the wild, we're very vulnerable. Therefore, it was in our survival interest, from a Darwinian perspective, to memorize very quickly every situation that was threatening and learn from it we're set up to memorize and learn all the situations and settings that make us feel insecure. The brain is very insufficient in memorizing all of the times in life that we were connected. It can, but it requires a substantially different practice. We need to linger and really drink in the positive experiences of our lives to hardwire the brain to take risks. If you don't do this, your brain will be risk-averse. Risk meaning anything that's new, any change your brain will view as a risk. Brains don't view new behaviors as opportunities. They view them as risks. So when I was 47 and I decided idiotically to learn how to skateboard at that age. All the time I had to sit and meditate on the times in my life where people tolerated me learning new skills, like I learned the accordion when I was 40, or maybe in my 30s. That was unpleasant for most of my friends. (laughs) It's important, though, to reflect and keep in mind and hold the times that we develop new skills, that we've taken risks, that people have been supportive, because again, you don't realize it, but your brain is set up to remember the bad news, the time that people are abandoning, are not caring. So the first thing is when, you, when we set an intention to go about reflecting on those positives. Two, to make a promise to ourselves if we're doing something creative, to only show it to people that will be supportive, to talk to people who will be on our side, to not talk to people who have been shown to be critical. We all want to get love from our families, but very often our families or sometimes people that we can hopefully expect to get love and support from, sometimes they don't. So we have to learn not to go to the hardware store for orange juice. We need to go to the grocery store, which means talk, share, connect with people who are supportive. The third important tool is if we're trying to give up a, um, an addiction... Addictions, too, have their underlying emotional coherence. They have their... All of our emotional beliefs have a reason behind them. People become addicted to substances as a way to replace other people in our lives. People develop addictions because at some point early on in life they have been wounded by people they wanted to receive love from. And so they turn to addictive substances as a way to get emotional connection that they don't trust human beings for. It's a way to replace other people. So if we want to give up addictive substances, whether it's cigarettes or food binging or um, uh, uh, gambling, shopaholism, uh, workaholism, we have to remember that these behaviors started as a way to regulate anxiety because we don't trust other people to help us in regulating those emotional states. We need to give the mind new connections, new support, so that we can move into. We need to go about all changes very incrementally, setting any expectation Today I'm going to write five pages. Even though I haven't written a page of uh, fiction in the last three years of my life, today I'm setting a goal to write five pages. That is the surest way to set ourselves up for uh, dropping out, for giving up. The surest way is to never criticize yourself. And whenever you set any time aside to do a uh, a, a, a self-integrate or develop a behavior that's healthy, reward yourself, no matter how little of it you've done. How do I do this? When I want to learn something new or develop a new skill, I wait to do the things that I really enjoy and feel stress-free until after I do the thing that I find stressful. I have never particularly, even though I write articles all the time, I don't enjoy it in the least. I find I still have a lot of great insecurity associated with writing. I feel like, uh, because my mother was a very talented writer, and my sister is as well, I've always felt lacking in it. And yet I write for a lot of magazines, And the only way I can do it is by saving, looking at all the websites and doing, going out for lunch and doing the things I enjoy after I write. So I associate writing instead of criticism or feeling less than, I associate it with the neural reward that will release dopamine directly afterwards. So I don't, I don't, actually indulge myself. Sometimes my reward of the day is I just get to, to look at some stupid sight that has no redeeming quality. But I associate it always, and I never, ever judge my output. If I write something that I consider after I write it to be utterly unusable, I never criticize myself or associate it with any falling short. If I I put any effort in, if I produce anything, then I reward myself, no matter what. Because the emotional mind, if I criticize or if I add a sense of any kind of ideation that causes stress, it will simply associate stress with that endeavor. So even though we have all been trained somehow, it seems that we've all been trained with the idea that we should push, prod, uh, criticize, compel ourselves, force ourselves to take on new skills, work on projects that are difficult. That's the most self sabotaging way to go about it. The brain is set up to seek dopamine and it's set, it's set up to avoid things we associate with stress. So use positive rewards. Finally, um, it's really important that the intentions that we set be authentic. Authentic intentions are not intentions that are based on performing to get love at any cost. They're based on moving towards creative endeavors, or pro-social connections that really authentically mean something to us. How can you tell the difference? Spontaneity. If you would spontaneously, without any prodding, want to write or draw or reach out, in the best circumstances, to connect with a certain group of people or do yoga or dance. If that's what you would authentically want to do, then go there. Don't try to set intentions to develop skills that have no authentic meaning in your heart. Because all you're training yourself then to do is to abandon yourself to get love. And that's not a good trade. So, let's take a few breaths together, just to... Take some breaths together, just to fully arrive a nice, long inhalation, and raise, if you like, your shoulders up like you're trying to touch your ears, and then hold them there for a couple of beats, longer than you normally would, and then breathe out through the mouth, and drop, and see if you can let the shoulders relax even further than they started, and if it feels good, pull them back, and then with a the second breath, pull in the belly, so you're keeping the belly tight. And holding it in. And then as you breathe out through the mouth, soften. And then for the third breath, tighten any muscles you like. Squinching the toes, uh, the facial muscles, tightening the fists, the buttocks, the legs, the arms, anything you want tight. And then release. And then trying to develop a breath that you associate with those times in life when you feel you have permission to relax it's a breath you don't have to pull in it just you allow it in and then it's a very long slow easy release In much of our lives, we feel the need to worry about things outside of ourselves, in the world, all the issues that we have to face externally, but our awareness doesn't prioritize taking care of our internal feelings. So scan through your body and with a very compassionate awareness see if you can adjust the body so that you feel really comfortable. Releasing any tightness in the way you're holding the legs. If your clothes are too tight, adjust them. If it feels appropriate, gently tilt the head up like you're looking at a tall building so that it prevents you from slouching, which will create strain in the neck muscles. opening up the chest, letting the arms hang lifelessly, really being indulgent with your comfort. See if you can soften those micro-muscles around the eyes. Sometimes what helps is, imagine what it would feel like if you could breathe in through the eyes, and with each in-breath you could soften those muscles. And then as you breathed out, everything in the lower body would relax. So breathing in, softening around the eyes. Breathing out and just feeling the muscles in the body relax. So, for the first part of the meditation, let's just settle the mind. Very often the mind, if it's not given what's called an anchor, something to keep it grounded in the present, will wander off on its own in search of drama. And generally where it will go is actually to Thoughts that cause stress. Triggering memories. Frightful possibilities about the future. Upsetting relational experiences. One might think that the mind goes off in search of pleasant, thoughts, but actually studies have shown the opposite. We tend to go off and focus on stress-inducing thoughts, so one way we can address this is by simply giving the mind an anchor, something to focus on that doesn't produce anxiety. So one could be simply staying aware of whether you're breathing in or breathing out, just finding an area of your body where the sensations of the breath are apparent, the chest, the tip of the nose, the belly. Just. Knowing, from the movements in the body of the muscles, expanding and contracting, whether you're breathing in or out. And you can count in-breaths and out-breaths, if you like. Or you could just keep a very simple phrase going. May I feel safe. May I feel loved. May I feel connected, may I feel peaceful, whatever phrase you want, you can coin your own. other anchors are just listening to the sounds that are arising and passing without adding any visuals or any thoughts about the sounds. So while you keep your anchor in mind, whether it's the breath or a phrase that you're repeating, perhaps repeating with each in-breath or out-breath, where you're just listening to the sounds or feeling the sensations of the body. Thoughts will rise, trying to pull your attention away. And sometimes they'll succeed, and all of that's natural. So there's no need, nor is there any Wisdom and adding criticism of yourself for frustration Knowing that this is simply an inevitable experience Just gently bring your awareness back and feel good that you're developing Awareness Feeling good that you're training your mind to detach from thoughts and just getting back in touch with the sensations of being alive. So, for the second part of the meditation, you can let go of your anchor, if you'd like, and just allow the mind to be present with all the sensations that are available. There's the feeling of being in a body, sitting, making contact with a cushion. There's the feeling of clothes in your body. You might have some... Flashes of light behind closed eyelids. The slight movements of the body as it sits. The feeling of the breath expanding and contracting the ribcage, the belly. And there will be sounds arriving there will be feelings in the body that are of emotional origin slight like feelings of sadness or joy anxiety or contentment known in the body by various contractions of muscles in the belly the chest the throat the face and there will be Shifting levels of awareness in the mind, times you feel awake and times you feel tired. And there will be thoughts, memories, projections about what might happen in the future, ideas, random images. It's all part. Generally, though, the mind tends to find the stuff it creates entirely out of the blue, our thoughts, our fears, our worries, our fantasies is the most fascinating and the most important to focus on. We lose all of the awareness of the messages being sent to us by intuition and the emotional mind. So in meditation we redress the balance by simply noticing thoughts, knowing what the basic topic it is. But we don't climb aboard and let those thoughts whisk us away like climbing on a train that's heading in the wrong direction. Just allow the thoughts to arise and pass, don't push them away, don't climb aboard. Allowing one thought train to arrive in the station of the mind and leave. And when a thought's very compelling, Just use all the other sensations available to you to keep outside of them. You might even notice that some thoughts really try to grab your attention by creating a lot of physical stress and anxiety. Still, don't climb aboard them. Stay with the feelings in the body. we're going to begin the transition from the meditation. <coughs> always, whether or not it was an easy meditation, or whether your mind was just filled with anxiousness, or jumpy, or tired, and you didn't get much peace, it doesn't really matter. Simply setting the time aside, to set an intention, to develop ease within. It's worthy in and of itself as it reminds you that there are more sources in life to peace and happiness than simply material accumulation. that there is a peace available that comes from simply reconnecting with all the feelings, emotions, inner states that we lose track of in life. When we have a source of ease within, that's unconditionally available, that doesn't cause harm to others, that doesn't exploit others, that doesn't use up the world's resources. We have something in our life that is purely skillful, that is blameless. You have a source of peace that no one can take away. And when you have this source we act inevitably with greater skill with other people, so it's not just for our benefit, but for the benefit of others. So, if we, when the time comes, simply open our eyes and look around. Sight is such a rich stimuli that it will push out of our awareness all the sensations and inner attention that we've cultivated. I found it to be a more useful approach to use the entire length of the sound of the bowl to very slowly open up my eyes, looking at an object on the ground so that I can integrate sight into the rich, varied awareness that I have developed during my meditation.